helped with that from what I heard. And uh, just neat to see the, the uh, excitement. Of course, when the women all go away on that uh, weekend in March, we do get a good turnout of men because we have child care. Um, but it usually amounts to a little Bible study with the men because the women are going having a great time. Also, would like just to thank the musicians this morning. What a, a blessed people we are with, uh, with people coming right out of our church and that want to play. And I don't know, I've said, I don't know whether I've said this before, and I, I don't want to brag too much on my own family, but uh, I really thank Kevin Reed for stepping in and taking a hold of this. He, uh, when he married my daughter, I had no idea he played any instrument. My, wife, my daughter knew that he played, I guess, a guitar occasionally, but it was never a part of the relationship, and he lived in our home for, I think, almost a year, part of a year, six months or something like that. And I never knew he played anything. And then he comes up here, and I mean, he just livened it up this morning with your playing, Kevin. I think you did a great job. And uh, Tom and you both get together and work hard on Saturday night, Friday night. Every time I turn around, they're getting together, working on the music. And we are so blessed to have them, and I appreciate both of them. Hundreds of times... Every day, the gavel comes down in a courtroom in our nation, and another divorce is granted in America. What started out as a relationship full of mutual delight and excitement, shared ideals, great expectations, and an unshakable commitment to one another ended up as a relationship full of mutual disillusionment and bitterness, broken ideals, dashed expectations, and forsaken commitment, even hostility. But there is another tragedy that is at work in our marriages today in our nation, and that is psychological divorce. I don't know if you've heard that term before, but... It is a term that describes divorce where there is two people that have decided to live together, inhabit the same dwelling place, but where there is little or no communication in that home. The divorce where two hurting and resentful people merely live together, perhaps eat at the same table. They don't say much. I'm sure you've all heard of the joke, which is a sad joke, but true. A husband and wife were driving down the highway. And as the husband was driving along, he noticed a fence. And on the other side of the fence, he noticed some mules that were grazing. And after two weeks of silence in which he hadn't spoken to his wife barely a word, he speaks up and he says, your relatives I see. And she breaks the silence that she'd been keeping for a couple weeks and says, yes, on my husband's side. (laughs) How sad that this is the only kind of communication that sometimes exists between a husband and wife. One study concluded that of couples 
who have been married between 20 and 35 years today in our nation, only six in 100 could say that their marriage was satisfactory. The other 94% evidently concluded that their marriage had become unsatisfactory, marked by apathy and indifference, maybe even disillusionment and coldness and hostility. Why? What went wrong? I wonder if we could, if we were to conduct a survey of Christians today, how many would say that the zest, enthusiasm, warmth, excitement, delight, joy, happiness has left their marriage? I'm not talking about their marriage to their spouse. I'm talking about their marriage to Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote Christians who made up the church at Corinth these very poignant words in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. I have a zeal for you. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. That's the husband. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. How many Christians today have are psychologically divorced from the one who, to whom they were betrothed? when they first became a Christian? How many today have turned away from Him and the simplicity that is in Him who is full of grace and truth toward burdensome works, doing things that they believe He demands and expects? For how many Christians today has their life in Christ become little more than a regimentation of going to church and Sunday school and serving in some kind of soup kitchen ministry that they dread. For how many Christians today is their spiritual life seldom more than a going through the motions? For how many Christians today has their love that once compelled them, their love for Christ that once compelled them forward as Christians? is little more than a memory of a bygone time in their life. Now it seems that it's all routine. A routine that in all honesty they would just as soon escape. Oh, how they wish they could escape and just say enough. I quit. I'm dropping out. But then what would people say? And what might God do? If all this comes close to describing your Christian life or mine, then I believe our Lord Jesus Christ has a message for us today. A message not just for church attenders, but for all of us who are busy in the work of the Lord. For all of us who hate, who hate evil and wrongdoing. For all of us who have correct doctrine who are committed to doing what is right and good.
for all of us who are even willing to confront false teachers and false teaching, but who may have come to that point in our Christian experience in which we are just going through the motions, who may have become like Christian machines, if you will, who just sort of continue along with a momentum that has been built up, but the power source has been turned off. If this comes close to touching your life at any point or mine, I would invite you and me to turn to Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. If you have a note sheet, if that got out, you can look on to that or open your Bible. There should be some pew Bibles. We're going to order some more. And this is from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. And I want to read this portion of Scripture to you. And we're going to be covering it in two parts, for time's sake. And, uh, in fact, all the churches of the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, we're going to look in two parts. I think you'll understand better next week why I'm going to do that. But in any case, I'm going to read the whole portion to the church at Ephesus at one time at this time. And this is what we would read. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Our Lord Jesus Christ begins to the angel of the church of Ephesus write. Before we begin to appreciate just what is being said here and how it might apply to us, let's back up and consider a little background. All those, these words were our Lord's words. He instructed the Apostle John to write them down for us. As he said, write them down in a book. What you've seen, what you've heard, John. Write these words down and put them in a book and send that book to the seven churches in Asia. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These words, as we learned last week, were actually being spoken by our Lord to a specific angel who had been charged or who was under orders, if you will, to identify and minister on behalf of the church at Ephesus, which, like all churches, was threatened by warfare that was spiritual 
and involved unseen spiritual forces. The fact that the Lord is speaking to this powerful angel who is in his right hand, so to speak, his hand of strength and power about the church at Ephesus in a triangulated conversation, which we talked about last week, which the church was expected to overhear the conversation was an effective means of getting the church to actually hear and listen to that conversation, to what was being said. Whenever somebody is talking about you or me to someone important, believe me, most of us will listen and we will listen carefully. That's what Jesus was doing here. What he was saying is, I really want this church to hear and take seriously what I'm saying. And I'm saying it to an angel, a powerful being charged with overseeing this church in the unseen spiritual realm. But in hearing these words spoken to an angel about that church, they were sure to listen. And notice again verse 7 in which he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If there's anything our Lord wants for us as we come to this portion of Scripture, He wants us to take away from it what He's saying. He wants us to really listen and to really embrace what's being said here. Our Lord Jesus Christ continues in chapter 2, verse 1, and He says this, To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. This verse really needs to be coupled with the preceding verse back in chapter 1, verse 20, where it says the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, John, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. The significance of repeating these figurative metaphors here in chapter 2, verse 1, demonstrates the mighty power of Christ who holds these stars in his right hand. These stars are the angels of these churches, powerful beings who are engaged in spiritual warfare on behalf of the church. And our Lord holds them in his right hand, the hand of power and strength, as a demonstration that he is able to bring about what he says. And where he makes a warning, they need to take it to heart because he can bring it about. And where he offers them a goal, a reward, they need to remember that he who has the angels in his right hand is able to bring that about. Furthermore, the statement about him walking in the midst of the golden lampstands or the seven churches is a reminder that he desires more than anything to have a relationship with the church. A church that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ is a church that's dead. This relationship, this fellowship with him is more important than anything we should covet as a church. But the fact that he's also in the midst of his churches. These seven churches also suggest that he sees and knows what's going on in each church. He's close to each church, and he also sees and knows what's going on in each one of our lives. In fact, he's able to see right into our heart and into the heart of this church. 
And he can see things that we aren't perhaps seeing. He can see the motives, the reasons for why we do certain things. And he's going to speak to that. Now, we also need to keep in mind that these seven churches, and as I mentioned last week, seven has the idea of a, of a representative number suggesting completeness or wholeness. In other words, you've got seven churches and it's speaking about the whole church. It's used in, I believe, four ways here. And I will develop one of these ways later on, and we're just going to touch on it today. First, these seven churches represent the entire church at the time that John wrote this letter, which would be about the end of the first century. These seven churches represent the church, the entire church at that time. There were other churches. But these churches and the problems that they faced and the hope that they had basically was could be embraced by all the churches that existed at that time. Secondly, these seven churches also represent the entire church at any period of time, including the very day in which we live. And so as we look at, these, at the messages to these seven churches, we can see that they are messages that were intended for the church today at our age and that they represent the entire church at this time. And therefore, we need to take care, consider carefully these words as a church. Third, and this is the one that I will come back and spend some time in the future showing you some things that will be exciting and I think unusual. But I believe the seven churches also represent the entire church throughout its history. That is, each church represents a period or stage in the history of the church up to the present day. The message here to Ephesus would represent the church during its first 100 years. From about A.D. 35 to about the middle of the second century, when persecution broke out widespread in the church. Now, we're going to look at the historical perspective of these seven churches, as I said, in a future time. And I'll also give you some evidence for why I believe that at a future time. Fourth, I believe the messages to these seven churches are messages that all Christians in all periods of time, regardless of what local church we are a part of, should consider and apply to their own life. Again, remember what Jesus said, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. These messages are to the churches, but they are also to individuals who make up the church. And a church is not made of brick and mortar. A church is made up of people. The stones in which a church is built are the living stones of God's people, according to the Scripture. And so we must always keep that in mind. Lastly, it would be good to keep in mind that the church at Ephesus was like a mother church to the other churches in Asia. Many of these churches had been spawned, if you will, by the church in Ephesus. Lots of churches all around. Furthermore, many of these churches, which had been established by the church of Ephesus, as well as those that hadn't, but still looked to the church of Ephesus as a source of leadership, example, a church in which there was teaching coming forth. It was a key church in that area at that time 
a true lampstand that had held high the light of our Lord Jesus Christ. The church at Ephesus was also the church our Lord chose to use as a model of the entire church during this first period in the history of the church. It was a model of the mother church, if you will, the apostolic church, the first century church, the church that would serve as a benchmark for other churches. What are we here today? We're going to go back to the early church. We're going to try to be more like the New Testament church. Well, what was the New Testament church like? The church at Ephesus serves as a model of that church. And it wasn't perfect, as sometimes we're led to believe. Therefore, we would do well to consider the church at Ephesus because it becomes that benchmark that we consciously or unconsciously use to measure churches today. Furthermore, and here's something that's unusual, Ephesus was the only church out of the seven churches that received an inspired letter of Scripture outside the book of Revelation. What book is that? Or letter? The book of Ephesians. It was written to the church at Ephesus. Furthermore, the church at Ephesus was also a church linked to John and his ministry. And 1 John, in particular, had in view the church at Ephesus. In fact, history, tradition says that on John's deathbed, they carried him into the church. And his last words were, love each other. Love Jesus Christ. Likewise, the church at Ephesus was a key church in the unfolding drama of the early church recorded in the book of Acts. How often do we read about the, the church at Ephesus in the book of Acts? And then, add to that, Paul and his writings. When he wrote to Timothy, where was Timothy pastoring? The church at Ephesus. This was the church. In fact, if, I, if somebody asks me where to start in their Bible, I will tell them, first of all, start in the Gospel of John and read that. Then, I would suggest that they read the book of Ephesus, Ephesians. Pardon me. The letter to the Ephesians. This church is a model church. It's a representative church. And it received in, those, in that book of Ephesians three chapters of powerful doctrine and then three chapters of practical application and exhortation. It was a church that was greatly blessed by God. A church that typified the early church, the church of the apostles. And so our Lord Jesus Christ continues with great praise for this church. Verse 2 of chapter 2 in Revelation chapter 2. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. There is much in the church at Ephesus that was worthy of great praise. Much that exemplified what our Lord was looking for in a church. And we mustn't overlook that as we move on to the one thing that they truly did lack. He starts off and he says, I know your works, your deeds. Works are important to our Lord. 
Anyone that says that works are not important does not understand the teaching of the Bible. Works are very important to our Lord. They have absolutely nothing to do with whether I go to heaven or not. But they have everything to do with how much we are blessed as a church, how much I am blessed as an individual in this life, and what kind of rewards I will receive in the life to come. But as far as my relationship with God and my eternal destiny, that is signed, sealed, and delivered at the cross of my Savior, Jesus Christ. Works are important to our Lord. And it's interesting that He will mention, either directly or indirectly, works in every letter He writes to these seven churches. What kind of works is He talking about here? Well, we're not told specifically. But I think we can take an educated guess by looking at the kind of things that were done in that day and were praised in other places. First of all, these works undoubtedly involved opening their homes and preparing meals for the small gatherings of believers to worship, hear the Word of God taught, and observe the Lord's Supper. The way I understand it, and nobody can absolutely be sure, but it seems that the, the church of Ephesus did not meet in a, a large auditorium like this. They met in courtyards in homes of maybe wealthier people who had the means to provide rooms and so forth that were large enough for that. Many, many homes had courtyards with a cistern and could be used as a baptistry. And they would meet in small groups. And all of these groups together would have teachers. And the people would come, maybe 15, 20, 30 people would come and they would meet in this particular home and another 30 down the street and another home, another 30 up the other street to another home and so forth. All of these churches together comprise the church at Ephesus. It's not one building with people meeting in one central place, but they were all identified with the city. And that's an important thing to keep in mind. In order to function as a church, they needed people who were generous who had means and who would willingly open their homes because many, many of those people that became Christians were slaves. They were nobodies. They had little. And so the few people that had means, God used to provide for the church and there were good works coming forth from those who had means. Furthermore, these works also involved what we might call hospitality. Christians, whether they had a small home or a large home, were very generous with their homes. When the Apostle Paul came, passing through Ephesus, he was taken in. Sometimes these traveling missionaries or evangelists or even believers that were traveling from one point to another where it wasn't safe just to go anywhere and stay with all the terrible things that were going on in some of these cities like Ephesus and Corinth and other major cities that were crossroads, they would go to the home of believers and would be welcomed in and fed and, and protected and shown the ropes of the town, so to speak, so they would know how to navigate the place and so forth. It's something that I think if I were to make one criticism of the church in America, which is ironic because if anybody has the ability 
to show hospitality. It's Christians in this country. But we don't. We're closed. It's an effort. We don't entertain or show hospitality easily. Sometimes people come and stay for long periods of time. And I know some of you have done that. And I'm not singling out anybody. In fact, if I'm going to single out people, be for people for praise because I've seen some people that have brought whole families into their home and kept them for a period of time, a lengthy period of time. That is the New Testament work of hospitality. And that's one of the works that was done in the early church for which the Lord was praising, I believe, this church at Ephesus. Other works likely involved proclaiming the Word of God in their community. We read in Acts 8 that the the people of the church, not the apostles, they stayed in Jerusalem, but the people were scattered and they went about preaching and proclaiming the truth of the Word of God. They were telling others about what Jesus had done, what He had accomplished, and they were explaining Scripture to them. They were people who knew their Bibles in the Old Testament and were learning from the books that were being written in the New Testament, were learning more and more and were associating all these things and the lights were coming on and they were sharing it with their family and friends. They were also involved in discipling other people. You take a Priscilla and Aquila. Here you have an eloquent speaker like Apollos. And when when Apollos opened his mouth, everybody fell over and they went, this guy's got it. The only problem with Apollos is he didn't have clear doctrine. He didn't understand the full gospel of the grace of God. Priscilla and Aquila take him aside and explain the way of of Christ more clearly. They discipled him. That was a good work on their part. And many others liked them. Men and women were involved. It wasn't a, a male show. It was men and women, servants, business leaders, all together working toward seeing that the world heard about Christ and that people were built up and discipled in the Lord. Our Lord continues. He says, I know your works, your deeds, and I know your labor. The word labor there means toil to the point of weariness. When it came to these works in Ephesus, like many other early New Testament churches, they toiled to the point of exhaustion and weariness. And the Lord knew that, and he praised them for it. And he says, I know your patient endurance would be a good word to add there. Your patient endurance. Furthermore, these works involve not just toil and personal sacrifice for the moment. Sometimes it would require toil and personal sacrifice that would last for a long time. And the church at Ephesus patiently endured and put up with it. Furthermore, he says, I know that you cannot bear those who are evil. Another thing our Lord Jesus Christ singles out above about the church at Ephesus is its refusal to put up with people who would bring evil into the church. The church did not tolerate evil, but remained committed to holding up purity and righteous living and holiness. Things like fornication, sexual perversion. If you go to Ephesus, by the way, They have a section of the museum just for the pornography that existed during that time. The church did not tolerate that. The perversion, the idolatry, the stealing, corruptions, cheating, covetousness, all of these things the church did not put up with. And the Lord says, I commend you for that. 
He wants us to take a stand against evil and not allow it to be brought into our church. The church at Ephesus, early on in its history, got off on the right foot when it burned the books of evil surrounding the the magician, Simon Magnus. And then he says, I also know that you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. Lastly, at the church of Ephesus, using the word of God and the spiritual gift of discernment. Many wonder, what is that gift of discernment? It was primarily a gift that was given so that you could tell a false teacher, a false apostle. And that was a a gift that was needed in the church. And they used that gift. And they used the Old Testament. And they used the books that were being written by Paul and Luke and others. And they were growing. And they stood up to these imposters because there were all kinds of people that were looking for a free ride. People who were using religion, if you will, as a way to pad their own hip pocket. Or who wanted to come and impart some kind of screwball doctrine upon the church. And the church at Ephesus sniffed this out. Sniffed out the false teachers. And they got rid of them. He said, they're liars. Get out of here. I don't like to use the word liar when I'm talking to a brother or sister in Christ. I think all of us struggle at times to get things worded correctly. And it offends me when I hear somebody call another believer, call another believer a liar. I might say that we maybe had a problem understanding or expressing the truth correctly, but I think liar is a strong word. But in this case, it's a word that was well-deserved for these false preachers People from the cults come to my door. They're liars. Not that they in their own personal life want to be liars. I don't believe that. But I know that they're coming and they're going to lie to me about what is true. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul warned the elders at Ephesus, at Miletus, that they were the elders that had kneeled down with Paul. And he says, I fear that one day, There's going to arise among you men who will bring into the church destructive heresies. By the time Paul writes to Timothy, pastoring the church at Ephesus, those heresies had already taken root. And he spends time in 1st and 2nd Timothy helping Timothy understand how to deal with them. And that's why there's so much teaching there about how to deal with false teachers. Paul had the, the brass, if you will, to single them out by name. You know, in our culture, you can't dare mention a false teacher by name. But Paul says, Hymenius, Alexander, and Philetus, they've wandered from the truth, have nothing to do with them. Years later, when our Lord spoke these words to a second generation church at Ephesus, so to speak, he was able to praise them because they had rooted out the troublemakers, and they stood their ground in opposing false teachers. All in all, the church at Ephesus and the early church itself did a good job of doing away, of doing what the Lord Jesus Christ wanted them to do. The church at Ephesus did not attend, people in the church at Ephesus didn't attend services and fold their hands, wait for the preacher to preach and then go home and wait for the next week or go about their business for a week and ignore the church and its people and its ministries. They were involved. They were busy. 
They were engaged with each other. When they got together, they talked about the church. They talked shop. And shop for them was church. It wasn't their job. It was the church. Why did they talk about it? Because Christ valued the church and they had learned to value it. He's impressed with their works and he gives them a further word of commendation in verse 3, which is sort of a general summary of what he had just said in verse 2. In verse 3 we read, and it's a, I'm going to give you a more literal rendering than what is in your New King James. Verse 3, And patient endurance you have, and you have persevered on account of my name, and you did not become weary and give up. That's his summary, if you will, of all that he said so far. What a sterling record of accomplishment and success as a church and as Christians. Certainly, these Christians in this church will hear one day, well done, good and faithful servant. It all depends on the why behind their actions. Not so fast. It's not just enough to do the right thing, but we need to do it for the right reason. And so our Lord continues in verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Let me retranslate that. But I have this against you, literally, that your first love you left. The emphasis is obviously on first love. First love. What was their first love? What's he talking about here? In our Lord's earthly life, he often focused the attention of those around him on the greatest commandment in the law of Moses, which was to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then the second he said was like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The most important thing in a believer's life is not what we do for God, but loving God with all our heart, with all our life, and with all our mind. How are we going to do that? He says, out of all of our heart, out of all of our inner person, we're to love God. Out of all of our life, Soul is the word for life, our human life, our physical life. Out of that physical life, we're to love God. And then he says, out of our mind, out of our thoughts and motives, we're to love God. Such love and devotion toward God was also clearly to carry over to our love for the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so we read in chapter John chapter 8, verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I came forth and from God and I've not come of myself, but he sent me. The first love of the Ephesians and all Christians is to be our love for God. And specifically our love for his son, Jesus Christ. But what does it mean to love him? The same way we are to love the Father. Out of our heart, our inner person, out of our physical life, out of our mind. Thoughts and motives were to love him. But how? A study of the New Testament. I, I did a study this past week in the New Testament. 
about what it means to love Jesus Christ. It's an interesting study, one you would find very profitable. But let me just give you some of the fruit of that study. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, the Apostle Paul said, The love of Christ constraineth me or compels me, motivates me. That's what he's saying. Our love for Christ motivates us or compels us to move forward for Him in all that we do. If He isn't the reason behind it, we shouldn't do it. It is to be the motive behind all the good works we saw highlighted by our Lord in the church at Ephesus. All those things that they were doing and He praised them for it. What was missing was the reason for it. They'd forgotten why. And if we love Jesus, He will be the reason for the good works we do. Furthermore, it says if we love Jesus, we will keep His Word. That's emphasized over and over again. Jesus answered and said to them, If anyone loves Me, he will keep My Word, and My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him, our fellowship with him. If you want to be close to to God the Father and God the Son, fall in love with His Word. And don't just fall in love with it. Take it to heart. Don't just become a a student, a, a heady student, but take it to heart. Keep it. Keep it close to your heart. Make it part of why you do what you do. Remain committed to knowing, hearing, and obeying His Word. In John 17, Jesus was praying for His disciples, including the future disciples who would believe on Him, including you and I. He said to the Father, sanctify them through thy truth. Set them apart in a special way through thy truth. And then he went on, thy word is truth. If we love our Lord Jesus Christ, then we will be moved, compelled to search his words, which are written in this book that we call our Bible. We're compelled to search it and search it out and look for those things that reveal to us his thoughts, what he values what He desires, what He purposes, what He wants from us. And then we will go forth and embrace those very things we have discovered. A quick review of what of the research that I did on this idea of loving the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament would reveal the following. Those who love the Lord Jesus Christ think as He thinks. They value what He values. They purpose and make plans in keeping with His purpose and His plans. They desire what He desires. They do what He commanded. If the Lord Jesus Christ values lost people, then if we love Him, we need to value lost people. If the Lord Jesus Christ values the local church, then if we love Him, we'll value the local church and not depreciate its value. If the Lord Jesus Christ desires us to forgive others, then we will desire to forgive others and quickly wipe the slate clean where we've been wronged. The Lord Jesus Christ is what it's all about. Such love for Christ had been abandoned, deserted. The word actually means divorce. The word leave. They left their first love. The word left is the word that is Paul uses of divorce. In reality, divorced him. Or deserted him, abandoned him, their love for him. That's the Ephesian Christians to whom he wrote all those wonderful things. 
But they weren't, he was not for, in the forefront of why they were doing it or in what they were trying to accomplish. They were just going through the motions. Let me be blatantly straightforward. What is more important to you and to me today? Our love for Jesus Christ or our happiness? Our love for Jesus Christ or our success? Our love for Jesus Christ or our marriage? What is more important to us? Our love for Jesus Christ or our home? Our love for Jesus Christ or our friendships? Our love for Jesus Christ or our financial house? Our love for Jesus Christ or our national security? Our love for Jesus Christ or our physical health? Our love for Jesus Christ or the ministry or our ministry in the church? Our love for Jesus Christ or feeling good about our life as a Christian? You see the contrast? So often when we separate those other things which can be good from our love in Jesus for Jesus Christ, we've set ourselves up for a fall because suddenly we will want and desire things that are not springing from our love for Christ. No matter how much we accomplish in His name, no matter how much we do and say on His behalf, no matter how much we endure as Christians on account of Him, no matter how much we are moved toward those things that we think are good as Christians, if we don't move because we love Him, we've missed the most important thing. As a result, we've gained little. How true the Apostles' words in 1 Corinthians 13. It's a passage you and I have all memorized at one point or another. Many of us have. A wonderful passage about love. But I'm going to ask you just to make a change in the text of the Scripture, and I know the Lord would be pleased to have this change made just for this point. And that is, put the name of Jesus in there. Let me read it to you with that in mind. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love for Jesus Christ, I've become a sounding brass or a clinging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove all mountains, but have not love for my Savior, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love for Him who died for me, it profits me nothing. Love for Him suffers long and is kind. It does not envy. It does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. does not behave rudely. does not speak its own. is not provoked. thinks no evil. does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love for Jesus Christ never fails. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, who began the China Inland Mission over a hundred and some years ago, had a fantastic ministry. Won thousands of people in China to Christ, to the claims of Christ, and through their faith they became born-again Christians. And the underground church today is strong in China Even though it's persecuted somewhat on the surface, it's underground and it's strong because of the work of Hudson Taylor and those who followed him. But at one point he was asked what was the primary qualification for a missionary. And the usual answer that you hear in the missions conferences are a love for souls. 
But Hudson Taylor would fire back and say, no, not a love for souls, a love for Christ. That's the difference. If we are motivated by the love for souls, what happens when those souls disappoint us, let us down, hurt us, even kill us, as, as the film End of the Spear will point out? What drove those men to come back and their families, I mean, to come back and try to reach that tribe? Yes, they loved them, but they loved them first because they loved Christ. And that's what drove them. Only our love for Christ can keep a missionary working in the most difficult of situations. Some missionaries today are working among Muslim peoples. The threat that any moment their head could be hung on a stick. And who see meager fruit. But they keep going because they love Christ. And I think about the works that we do in the church. Whether I'm sitting here and standing here in the pulpit and preaching to you, am I doing it because I love Christ? Are we serving in Awana or in Sunday school or as greeters or in the or in the worship team or the instrumental team? Because we love Christ, or are we doing it for some other reason? And if it's for another reason, it amounts to nothing. Our love for Christian brothers and sisters in the church must begin with a love for Christ. It must grow out of a love for Christ because people will always disappoint us. They will let us down. Only Christ can make the difference. The church had left or abandoned their first love, their love for Christ. Instead, like many churches, they were operating on pure momentum, going through the motions, living their Christian lives day in and day out without much thought to what they were doing or why they were doing it. They just did it and thought, well, we did it. We got something done. That isn't the key. The spark of love that had ignited their hearts and lives at one time had been left behind in their rush to do the work of the Lord and build up His church. As Christians from all ages and from all different times and cultures all over the world, our Lord wants all of us to read these words which were directed at a very good church by any standard except His. And He wants us to read these words and realize that they're directed just as much to us as they are to the church at Ephesus. Have we left or abandoned our love for our Lord Jesus Christ? Each one of us needs to ask that question. Only he and I know the answer. You can't tell. But if it's true, what can we do about it? Indeed, what can the church at Ephesus do about it? How could they stir up love and good works? We come back to the couple living together. The marriage is on the rock, so to speak. There's a psychological divorce that's taken place. There's been no communication Two people walking and living around in the home, seldom sitting down together. What's the first thing they need to do? they got to come together and sit down and begin to talk. Likewise in the church, one thing that's assumed, a primary assumption in the New Testament is that, we, and that we often take for granted is that our love for Christ is cultivated within the body of Christ. And when Christians forsake the assembling of themselves together, they are setting themselves up 
for failure. Lone wolf Christians are not going to experience for long a fervent love for Christ. The old adage that when you take the coal out of the fire, it quickly goes out. We need to be together. And from that vantage point, we can stir one another up to love for Jesus Christ. Listen to Hebrews 24. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love. And we could substitute in there love for Jesus Christ and good works which flow out of that. Not forsaking the assembling of themselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as we see the day approaching. Once we assemble together with other Christians like the Ephesian church was doing, then there's something that we can do to restore love for Christ in our midst. Jesus says, verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. Or else I will come quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The couple that is having a struggle in their marriage, they've been living a psychological divorce. The question is, how do you bring this couple back together? And first, you can't, but they can. They can go back to an earlier time in their life when their love was on fire, so to speak. They can go back to a special spot, a place that's special to them and talk about the love that they had for one another and what happened to it. Likewise, our Lord Jesus Christ says, remember from where you have fallen. What is the place from which they have fallen at Ephesus? The place where love was intense, overwhelming like a flood, influencing every aspect of their life. Where was that place? In an earlier letter, John told them exactly what the place was. He said, we love him, Jesus Christ, because he first loved us. That place is where we first experienced the love of God. And where was that? John speaks again in John chapter 4, verse 8, 1 John 4. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that He loved us, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Not that we loved Him, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Where's the place that we can go to rekindle our love as a church, as individuals? We can go to Calvary. Most of us as Christians know what that means. That stands for the cross where Jesus died for us. It's why we take communion every month to be brought back to the cross because it is the measure of God's love. The resurrection is the measure of His power. But the measure of His love is the cross. For in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, we're told in the Scripture. Is our love life sagging? Are we just inhabiting a church building and going through the motions of our religion? Or are we enjoying a relationship God intended to us to enjoy with Him through His Son? Our work's flowing out of this relationship. If our spiritual life is in the toilet, as they say, then remember, go back. Go back and think about one thing, the cross of Christ. This is the place 
God has measured His love and marked out for us to always go back to that point and rekindle our love for our Savior. Furthermore, he continues, as they remember, then our Lord asked them one more thing to do as Christians who made up the church at Ephesus. He says, repent and do the worst, the first works. When a couple comes back together and they're trying to put their marriage back together, the most important thing for them to do is to say, I'm wrong. I've gone in the wrong direction. They need to confess to each other their sins and their failures. And they need to then make a definite commitment to live differently. To change the way they're going to relate in their home. And that's exactly what our Lord wants us to do. The church at Ephesus was determined in their hearts to change their ways. And to do new works, first works. These are not the different works. The first works that they were being commanded to do were not different works than they were doing. With exception of one thing. They were now going to go back and do them because they loved Jesus Christ. That was the difference. The same reason that moved them to do those works in the beginning, they need to return to that motivation, that reason. The love of Christ compelling them forward to do all these things. In 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul commended the church at Thessalonica, and he says, I commend you for your labor of love, love for Christ. That's what moved that church to do good works. For instance, coming to church, not out of Christian duty, but because we love Christ. Why are we here this morning? Is it duty? Or is it because we love Christ? When we come out and serve in some way in the church, is it because we've been asked and pressured? Or is it because we love Christ? Am I preaching because... I'm paid to preach or because I love Christ. We need to embrace his values, his desires. Of what value is a church that works hard, but which loves little? When it comes to our Lord Jesus Christ, not much. That love is critical. And if we don't get it back into our motivation and our reason for these works, then the Lord says, I'm going to come and remove your lampstand and take your church away. Eventually that happened at Ephesus. It went on to be a great church for about four centuries. They had the Council of Chalcedon in 431 there. All the churches from around that part of the world came together, dealt with a critical problem in terms of doctrine. But then by the fifth century, it was gone. You know what's interesting? The city was gone with it. You can go today and you go to old Ephesus and you see this pile of ruins up on a hill and you're thinking, well, why would anybody build a city here? The ocean's way out there. In that day, the Mediterranean Sea was all the way up to the point of the city itself. It was a great harbor. But then something happened. It died. The city died. The church died. Our Father, we pray today that you would drive home to our hearts 